My guest is Lionel Barber. Lionel Barber is a journalist, an author, and editor of the Financial Times from 2005 to 2020. Welcome to the podcast, Lionel. Good to be here, Paul. We're going to talk about many, many things, uh, including the future of the media landscape, relationship between maybe the media and politicians, the European debate, which is ongoing in the United Kingdom, which you know very well indeed. But before we start all that, I'd like to, if you don't mind, talk a bit about you and your career. It's not that it's coming to an end, on the contrary, but I want to talk about the path you took. You leave Oxford with a joint honours degree in German and modern history. Uh, Did you immediately think that journalism was going to be your preferred career, your chosen career? I only settled on journalism finally in my last year at Oxford because I had a rather wacky idea that I should go into business and help Britain (laughs) in the late 1970s, which was a grim period, if you remember. And I'd spent a year abroad working in a a village in Germany, including a stint as an interpreter and translator. And for some reason, I thought that maybe I could apply these skills uh, to the likes of Unilever or Shell or Procter & Gamble. And funnily enough, none of them wanted me after the first interview. (laughs) So uh, you know, I, I'd hesitated about journalism because my father was a journalist and he'd been ra- quite successful. He'd left school at barely 15 years old. He came, he, you know, he was self-educated. And I didn't think I should go in the same field as him. And I didn't think I could be anywhere near as good as him. But basically, when you're turned down that many times, <laughs> you kind of think, I need to go where my gut is telling me to go, which is journalism. But you didn't study journalism per se at Oxford. You studied German and modern history. But in a sense, that's quite a good grounding, you know, for for international journalism. Well, I don't think I'm not a great fan of media studies and I'm not sure whether you can (laughs) study journalism. I'm from the school that, you know, you've either kind of got it, that instinct for what a story is and storytelling. But you're right. Um, I, I always had this kind of dream of being a foreign correspondent. Um, It was somewhat glamorous. It was, you know, I really wanted to work in America. And I knew that, you know, I'd done German. I speak fluent German still. I follow the language. I'd done seven years of French and I'd also done some Russian. So I always wanted to use my languages. And as it turned out in the journalism that I chose to do, they proved very useful, particularly French and German. So you joined the FT in 1985. Um, was that your, your ongoing goal ever since you left university when you decided to embark on a career in journalism? You did a stint, obviously, at the Sunday Times and also uh, the Scotsman, your very first job. But was the FT was the, the ultimate destination for you, the ultimate ambition? No, no, I only got one job offer at the end of my time at Oxford, which was the Times newspaper, regional newspaper, and they sent me to Scotland. And I started with Sally Magnuson, the, the daughter of Magnus. I've started, so I'll finish Magnuson. <laughs> and she had gone to Edinburgh University and she was a star. So there was little me, this you know, English guy, turns up in Edinburgh, year of the Scottish referendum on independence, um, well, for, for an assembly. And you know, I, I had to really struggle a bit. And then I got the Young Journalist of the Year in Britain, hired by the Sunday Times. And at this point, I'm thinking I want to be a business journalist because this way I can, you know, do my own thing. And it was only when I went on a 
Greek island Mykonos and saw um, Edna and Dennis Healy walking after breakfast with a copy of the Financial Times in their hands, I thought maybe I should take a look at this newspaper, which I'd never even read. And it turned out it was an incredibly rich read. It was quite challenging. But above all, they had loads of foreign correspondence. So it occurred to me, well, actually, this, this is quite a good newspaper. And then the more I was working at the Sunday Times, the more I was realized that Sunday journalism was getting harder and that to go to the FT, one, you could become a foreign correspondent, and two, you just do something more serious and deeper. Maybe in parentheses, for the benefit of our non-British listeners, I should point out that Dennis Hiddy was a senior Labour politician in the 60s and 70s, and Edna was his wife, obviously. So, so when you got the job at the FT, you, you, were, you felt you were home. This is your niche. This is your, your vocation. Well, I'm not sure about that, because in the first two weeks, I made three mistakes in one uh, story <laughs> and also got told by the, one of the top editors uh, we know you, we've admired your work at the Sunday Times, but we don't need any of your exclusives. So, you know, I had to make my way as a financial reporter. I then broke, I did actually break some big stories, particularly there was a scandal at the time around Western, which cost Mrs. Thatcher two cabinet ministers. And I kind of made my reputation. And as a result of that, they sent me to Washington, which was a great assignment. Do you have any recollection how ambitious you were as you started your career? Did you have very sharp elbows? Because obviously you, you've had all these top jobs. You say you went to Washington, you were a Brussels bureau chief where you and I first met, news editor, European editor, US managing editor. Did you have this ambition from the outset? No. I, I, so first of all, I never, ever thought I'd become an editor of a newspaper. I, I, I never, and I didn't have that ambition. All I would say is, yeah, I had sharp elbows, but not internally. More, I was very competitive as a reporter. And I was also a reporter until I was 43 years old, mm. which is quite old. I mean, I left Brussels in 1998, but I'd done six years in Washington, six years in Brussels. And then I, you know, I felt ready for an executive job. And I think the longer I did an executive job, I thought, you know what? I can actually, I quite, I'm, I've always been a leader you know, on the rugby field, cricket, whatever. And I just felt I was, it, it felt more natural to be wearing that kind of responsibility. But I was lucky that I didn't become an executive too soon. Do you think that the FT is, in a sense, slightly a victim of its own success? It's obviously an elite newspaper for the, for the elite, uh, uh, but it is slightly maybe occasionally guilty of resting on its laurels because it has such access well, I hope it didn't when I was in charge, and I don't think it does now. I think, you know, I don't see how you can rest on your laurels when it's such a competitive mm -hmm. media environment. I think the FT has definitely become sharper edged in its reporting and the subjects that which it's prepared to tackle. Is there a little bit of a sort of, we, we, we talked to the elite um, and we didn't do enough perhaps reporting on the ground in one or two areas? Possibly, yes. But if you think of how many newspapers have folded, how many ventures have um, founded, mm -hmm. and the fact that certainly, you know, in my tenure, we went, we doubled the paid circulation to more than a million paying readers. I think that's a tribute that we did expand the market and expanded our audience and grew in very difficult times. 
as you know, for quite a long time, there was this, this narrative whereby the mainstream media, like the FT and others, were on this inexorable decline because that was the way of the world. People were not reading newspapers. They were going online and especially quality press was suffering. Uh, do you think now that, 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 that the, we turned a corner and now there's more of an appetite and a need for serious journalism, such as the FT, but other, other competitors as well? Well, I think that there's a, um, a space for quality and for trustworthy information and authoritative analysis, which is certainly what the FT um, aspires to, to deliver every day around the clock. And I think that others have followed our model. So if you look at the way Bloomberg has not least poaching, um, one of the senior executives describes Bloomberg as the Manchester city of journalism. <laughs> and I can confirm that you know, their uh, salary packages are very favorable and they're constantly looking to hire from the FT. So, but, but, you know, there is a niche, but it's quite a big niche for reliable, trustworthy information. Also, the FT has a global footprint, which gives it advantage, an advantage. So, yes, there is some space. And it's, we're, not, we're not just kind of taking a defeatist line that, you know, everything has to be dumbed down, because I don't think it does. There'll come a day, surely, when people will stop buying newspapers. They'll just look on their smartphones or their laptops for, for news. Is that... Do you see that well, happening anytime soon? They, they already are uh, consuming vast amounts on their laptop and also, above all, you know, on their mobile phone in compressed um, form because they get their news and updates from Twitter, they get news alerts, all these things. The only, I guess, point I'd make is certainly at the weekend, there's room for a more relaxed read and that's what the print version offers. I think maybe the daily is a bit more challenged, but there is a different reading experience between reading a newspaper and reading Twitter or even reading just digitally. I'm not saying it's inferior because obviously the digital read can give you moving picture, data, all the rest of it, that kind of stuff. But I think that, uh, so I think there is still room particularly at the weekend for a week for a print read. Right. Well, let's move on then briefly to the, the relationship between media and, and politicians and power, because obviously your, your, the journalist's job is to, to shine a light on what's happening and what the behaviour of politicians uh, um, and their policies. But at the same time, we know it's, it can be seen from the outside, quite a cosy relationship right, between some journalists and some politicians. Each side needs each other. Uh, they seem to socialize an awful lot. They seem to have similar backgrounds, similar DNA. And, and critics, as you'll know, better than I do, often say it is far too cozy a relationship. What do you say to that? Access is double-edged. You know, my way of dealing with this, I did deliberately get to know people in power, both in the business and political world, because I felt that having access, direct access to principles as opposed to surrogates or intermediaries or facilitators or whatever, flunkies, uh, however you want to describe it, was, was good. But you need to have eyes wide open. So first of all, I was very clear. You don't have friends. You can't have friends. They're not friends. They're, they're sources, they're acquaintances, they're, they're people you have a relationship with, but they're not friends. And then I think the other point is, 
uh, and one of my colleagues used to remind me of this, that every now and then he said it's important to give your source, your best sources, a kicking. <laughs> uh, I, I'll leave it to you to um, who that was, but there we are. I, I think that's maybe a little bit harsh, but certainly, you know, in the 14 years I was editor and, you know, or when I was in Brussels, I had obviously very good sources, but I never relied on just politicians. I never relied on four sources that I always used to go back to. I was constantly looking to expand the network. And that way you're never, you're, you're going to be in a less vulnerable position to being exploited. But the day anybody rings you up and basically tries to put the muscle on, that's the day that relationship's finished. I suppose that this coziness, and maybe coziness isn't slightly a loaded word, an unfair expression to use, is inevitable in the sense that so many politicians, and not just elected members of parliament, but also their advisors and all the people around them have had maybe careers in the media before their, their current career and vice versa. Uh, James Slack in Downing Street going off to work in The Sun, uh, Guta Harry, ex-BBC, now going back to work for Boris Johnson, number 10. I suppose this is inevitable. It's quite a revolving door, isn't it? Well, I, I don't have so much of a problem with that as long as when they go back in government, you need to know what business relationships they may be carrying with them. Um, I mean, you can't expect either journalists or politicians to be, uh, to coin a phrase, monks in cells. I mean, it doesn't work like that. The other thought is when you describe the cosy relationship, I always remember going to a Tory party conference in Birmingham in about 2008 or nine, and literally watching the whole of the shadow cabinet, the Tories cabinet, shadow cabinet, turn up for lunch with Rebecca Books of the Sun. I mean, it was incredible. Uh, or you know, the News International Party in the Orangery in London, the Summer Party. I mean, they were all Peter Mandelson, David Cameron, George Osborne, all queuing up to kiss the ring of Rupert Murdoch. Well, just a moment. I mean, you, you, you laid on some pretty fabulous FT Summer Parties as well, which I've been privileged to attend. You know, I'm not sure they were kissing your ring, Lila, but, they were, you know, you, you did attract a good crowd. Come on. We did, but nobody kissed my ring. They kissed the <laughs> other part of my anatomy. No, that's <laughs> right. Okay, let's move on to the Lionel Barber's post FT lives. I presume there is a life after the FT. Uh, there is. Um, do you find, first of all, without being talking about specific projects that you may not may or may not want to talk about, do you feel a sense of kind of freedom now that you can be much more outspoken and candid in your in your commentary, you're, you're frequently commenting on all sorts of current affairs. Do you enjoy, is there a new freedom that you're relishing? Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you're the editor of the FT, you need to be watching um, your P's and Q's, that you're not branded as a, you know, an activist or somebody who's, you know, having, you know, I probably can be a bit more outspoken on certain things. And anybody who follows me on Twitter will see that. Mm. But, you know, I could be pretty blunt in private um, on, on issues. Um, but I'm, a, yeah, I'm a bit more, you know, not necessarily unbound, but certainly less constrained. And, and that's fine because after I was editor for 14 years. I'd been with the FT almost 35 years, and it was time for a change and time to let another generation take over and do something different. And that's what I'm doing. 
And as you approach the end of your, your stint at the FT, did you already start thinking without being maybe too uh, specific about the kind of things you wanted to do post-FT? Such as, for example, uh, to be very specific, your association with the new European newspaper. Well, I didn't know that was going to come up. And that, that was just, all, all I knew is that um, I, I didn't really want to run anything because I'd run a big organization for 14 years. I obviously had written, I was doing other, I was doing some reporting as the editor because I liked reporting and writing, but most of the job was being in charge of what I call 585 brilliant anarchists, better known as journalists. And it was time to do something different. And I wanted to do a portfolio I, 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 and, and do some writing. Uh, I did a book, my, my, my memoir sort of as, a, as an editor. Yeah, The Powerful and the Damned, a great yeah. read. Yeah, well, thanks. And, and I'm writing now a book on SoftBank. At least it's, it's six months underway and on this huge media technology conglomerate. But I, 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 you know, I'm mixing some things, people I, I like working with, um, doing a bit of mentoring, a bit of writing and broadcasting, and that suits me fine. I, I prefer the portfolio. Yeah. Right. So a, a final question. Is there, is, am I right in saying that quite a strong connection to all these different aspects of your portfolio is, is the European Union and the UK's relationship with the EU post, post-Brexit? Is that something that you're particularly exercised about? You, I, I know you from your Brussels days that there's always been an in, a strong interest of yours, obviously. Is that something you're going to major on now? Uh, well, I, I would emphasize that I have an important interest in the United States because I've lived there for 11 years. Um, I do some private consultancy um, um, and I have links with think tanks and I, I try and keep on top of what's going on in America. But you're right, the European Union and Europe, it matters to me personally. And I've worked for six years in Brussels. You alluded to that earlier as bureau chief. The, the, the years 92 to 98, sort of crisis of Maastricht creation of the single currency. Made lots of lifelong friends there. You know, and I, I follow it closely. And I, I didn't, you know, and the FT opposed Brexit. We didn't think it was a good idea. Mm. We thought it was an act of economic self-harm. I think that's being shown. We think it marginalised Britain. That looks as though it's the case. I'm not saying it can't be turned around, but, you know, taking an interest and trying to contribute to the post-Brexit debate in Britain is definitely something that I'm interested in doing. And that also accounts for why I'm trying to help the new European a bit in terms of, you know, writing occasionally or advising them. So what kind of advice would you give, if any, to, to people in Britain who are pro-European, maybe not obsessed by the daily uh, occurrences are happening inside the European Union, but obviously they are just pro-European and anti-Brexit. Given the current government, there's not going to be maybe any immediate change in the the tone of debate and and the level of engagement with the European partners, but maybe in the medium to longer term, do you have any uh, advice to give or or even reassurances to how British pro-Europeans should keep up the good fight? Well, we just have to, first of all, speak up when it looks as though the government is, is turning our relationship with our nearest neighbours into a, an adversarial one where it's a sort of semi-permanent warfare, verbal warfare or economic warfare, because that that's just does not suit the national interest. It, it, it's not where we should be. And we should be arguing rationally for 
um, constructive positive relationships with the European Union and with particularly with the with the most important countries like France and Germany. Um, that's not to say we want a, a subjugated relationship or we don't, we don't but we, we need to try to come up with some positive thinking about the way forward, which doesn't mean rejoining anytime soon, because I don't think that's, that's not a possibility on either side for political reasons. So what kind of forms of accommodation can we put forward? Do you think that's the, behind the thinking then of, of, of Keir Starmer? Uh, it, it, is, it, is, it is adamant uh, uh, asserting that there's no way the UK should in any time actually rejoin the European Union. He, he just, for him, it's just reality kicking in, the risk of maybe uh, disappointing some of his followers, a big chunk of his followers. Well, it's, it, it's almost certainly, I, I would say 99.9% certain that you know, if he were to uh, propose you know, a path to uh, applying for membership of the European Union again, that would be a vote killer. And, and he knows what, that. What by the way, that's what Johnson wants. Right, okay. Johnson wants to point, Boris Johnson wants to paint Labour into that position. He's on the record as saying that. Uh, even if it's a shimmer, even if it's never going to happen. So he has to avoid that. Right. Okay. Well, we have to leave it there. Good luck with all your projects. Good luck with the book. Uh, Lionel Barber, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Paul. It's a great pleasure.